so good to see you all. Welcome to FBC. Sing, jump into the word that we're about to uh, start now. So uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Hosea, which is, of course, in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There are some on the seats in front of you. Go ahead and grab one of those. Or if you have a phone, a tablet, a laptop device of some kind, you can follow along on the Bible app there. But you will need a hard copy since we don't have it up on the screen. Uh, we're in week three now of our study through the book of Hosea. I've enjoyed it. I hope that it's been uh, fruitful and helpful for you as well. It's a fabulous book, so we're just going to continue right along this morning. We're in chapter two now, uh, but let's pray one more time as we prepare specifically for our time in the Word, shall we? God, we uh, I want to say thank you again for this time together this morning, and we pray specifically now, Lord, that as we open up your word, you would uh, speak to us, you would uh, help us to understand the things that we read. Lord, we need your help, we need your spirit to guide us, and so we come in humility to you and ask for that. Lord, we also just ask that you would use this time to shape us and to change us and transform us to look more like you. So help us to think how you do and to act how you do and live how you've called us to live, Lord. We need your help uh, in that area as well. So Lord, we, we give you this time. pray that you'd use it for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, pastor and author Kyle Eidelman wrote a book a number of years ago called Gods at War, and in that book, he talked about this conversation he had with his daughter one night before bed. He was tucking her in, and they were having a conversation, and she said proudly to him, this is a pastor's kid, she's like, I memorized the Ten Commandments, Dad. He was like, right on, cool, all right. And so she shared the Ten Commandments, she recited them out loud for him, and he was like, wow. That was great, and she was real proud, and so he thought, man, this is maybe a teachable moment, and so he asked a question. He said, have you ever broken any of the Ten Commandments? And she kind of got this smile, this kind of nervous grin on her face, and she, you know, she knew that she had, and so he's like, yeah, let's talk about it. So have you ever, you know, taken anything that wasn't yours? you ever stolen? Yeah. Have you ever not honored your mom or dad? Yeah. Maybe you haven't killed anybody, but have you ever been like really, really angry at somebody? Yeah, okay. And he, he was doing this not to like beat her down. It's, you're a sinner. He wasn't doing it uh, for that reason, but just to help her see that God has these standards, these commands, and we often break them. And so he wanted her to see that. But then towards the end, she got this big smile on her face, and she's like, Dad, there's one commandment I know I've never broken. She was real happy about that. He's like, all right, which one? She was like, I've never worshipped an idol. It's like, interesting. Okay, he, he didn't want to break her heart there in the moment, but in his mind he was thinking, actually, that command to not worship any other gods, to not make an idol, is the command that we often break the most. If you know the Ten Commandments, again, number one is there should be no other gods before the Lord. And number two, not to create or carve some kind of image, an idol, something to be worshipped. And she was saying, I've never done either of those. 
But he knew that she had and that actually we all have, even though the concept of idolatry and worshiping other gods sounds like a really ancient, primitive idea. We think that us modern people have never struggled with that. We just don't do that anymore. He knew that we actually do. And the text we're going to look at this morning is going to look at the concept of idolatry and how we give our hearts away to other gods. That's what we see going on in Hosea chapter 2. You see, for the past few weeks, we've been in Hosea chapter 1. We've seen some pretty big concepts of sin and judgment and hope. And this week, it's going to get a little bit more specific where we see exactly what's going on with God's people in the 8th century B.C. And so you see it start off in verse 2 with these kind of harsh words. Hosea 2 verse 2 says this, Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Again, this is vivid language, speaking of adultery and sin. And in order to make sense of this and, again, understand what's going on here, God is using this image of a husband and a wife to explain his relationship with his people. And here he's saying that his people, this, this woman he's figuratively speaking of, have been unfaithful to him and gone after other lovers, been an adulterer. And chapter 2 is then going to unpack what exactly that adultery looks like and how God responds. And the, the chapter kind of weaves in and out. It's not super linear. And so we're going to kind of zoom in on a couple verses and kind of go back and forth. That'll give us the full scope and understanding of what chapter 2 is all about. And so I want to look next at verse 5 to really see the heart of the matter. It says this, their mother, again, this woman, his, his people, been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. So maybe you notice the problem here. The people of God are saying, I'm going to go after these other lovers and they're the ones who give me my food and water, wool and linen and so on. Now these items that are mentioned would be standard items that a husband would provide for his spouse and for his family, food and water and clothing. See, in the ancient world, women and wives were much more dependent upon their husbands to provide for them, to protect them. And so it would be expected that these provisions would come from a husband to take care of his wife. But you notice in the text that the woman mentioned is not seeking or receiving, in her mind, these provisions, food, water, clothing, jewelry, all these things, from her husband, but she says, from my lovers. So all these other men that I'm running around with, they're the ones who are taking care of me. See, in the 8th century B.C., the time when Hosea was ministering as a prophet, the people of God in the northern kingdom of Israel were influenced by the worship of a pagan god named Baal. Baal was the storm god of the Canaanites and was often associated with fertility. And often when people would go to the temple to worship Baal, they would 
be this kind of sexual nature to it, where they were trying to evoke his response and his, uh, the idea of fertility and bearing fruit so that the land would prosper, so that rain would arrive. Now, worshiping a storm god might sound silly to us. This whole idea might sound really, again, ancient and foreign, but think about this for someone in the 8th 8th century BC, someone who lived in the ancient world. See, for them, life surrounded, or excuse me, was uh, influenced by, depended upon agriculture. Like ancient villages in in the time of ancient Israel uh, centered around agriculture, growing crops. They needed food to survive, to eat, and so they depended upon the rain that would come and provide the crops in season, each season, season after season. So there wasn't like there was this big Costco that they could go to and stock up on like canned soup and Cheetos and uh, Top Ramen for like an emergency shelter. You know, they depended on the rain and the crops each season to provide for them food, for their families, for their community. And so a drought, if there was not rain, it would be a serious life-threatening issue for a family, or for a community. And so imagine the people of Israel are surrounded by these foreign nations who are worshiping this God named Baal, who is in charge of, they say, the storms and the rains. And so they're saying to the people of Israel, imagine you guys, yeah, you worship your God of the Bible, you worship Yahweh and Him alone, fine, but as for us, like, we kind of want the rain to come. We're kind of worried about whether or not our crops are going to go. So we're going to go worship Baal because he's the one who controls the rain. So you guys do your thing over there. Good luck with that. We're going to go to the one who controls the rain. Thank you very much. And so what started to happen was the people of God started to doubt. Is our God able to provide for us what we need? Is our God truly the one who controls the rain and the weather, who can help our crops grow, or maybe it is Baal. And so maybe we should kind of hedge our bets. We'll worship the God of Israel, the God we've known for years and generations, but we'll also start to make some sacrifices to Baal over here, make sure Baal is happy so that the the rains come, and so that our crops grow, and that we have food. And so, again, verse 5 of chapter 2, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. And so the people are saying, who provides for us? Well, my lovers. Prosperity and abundance came. And rather than saying, thank you, Lord, God of Israel, the God we have known for generations, they say, thanks, Baal. You sent the rain after all. We're so happy and grateful for what you have done. Now, is anyone here today by raise of hands caught up in a religious cult with sexual overtones honoring a pagan storm deity? No? Someone in the back? No, just kidding. Uh, I didn't think so. Right? That's kind of foreign to our context. Doesn't seem like something we struggle with. However, we shouldn't just dismiss this text dealing with idolatry and worshiping other gods as something that people centuries ago dealt with, but we don't today, because the symptoms might look different 
in our day right now, but the heart of the matter is still the same. Because what's going on in the hearts of the people of God? They're saying, God can't provide for us what we need. And so we are going to have to go and get our security and our livelihood and our protection and our provision somewhere else. I have to look to something other than God to give me what I need. And that's what the Bible calls idolatry, where we put something else in the place of God as provider, as sustainer, as the one worthy of worship. And so that same pastor that we talked about at the beginning of the morning who was talking with his daughter, he writes this quote. He says, what if idolatry is not about statues and little images we make? What if the gods of here and now are not cosmic deities with strange names? What if we do our kneeling and our bowing with our imaginations, our checkbooks, our search engines, our calendars. So he's saying, today we don't worship the storm god Baal like the people in Hosea's day did. It's not a problem for us. But we've created plenty of idols and other things that we do worship. Some examples, some of us seek our comfort and our fulfillment from food. Ever heard of comfort food? Studies have shown that the average American consumes two to three pounds of sugar per week. Per week. A little over 100 years ago, the average American consumed five pounds of sugar per year. Our food choices, after a long day, a hard day at work, we run to the ice cream, the fast food, that's where I go, the drive-thru. Right? We look to these things to fulfill us, to satisfy us, to comfort us. Maybe for some of us it's not food, but it's sex. Google and other companies have tracked the most searched terms online on web browsers and found that the words pornography and sex log hundreds of millions of searches every month. I mean, it really is a modern-day epidemic and addiction. For some of us, we look to relationships, right? We can be infatuated with romance, thinking that if we just find the right person, that Mr. Right that misses, right? They're going to provide everything that we need. They're going to make life worth living. I knew a college pastor once who was overseeing a large ministry, and every once in a while they'd start to see people drop off the map. They would stop coming to church, stop coming to the ministry, and his first question he would always ask was, oh, when did they start dating a non-Christian? <laughs> it's like they started dating someone, and for them that became more important than their commitment to the Lord. So we saw it over and over again. For some of us, it's entertainment. We pursue comfort, nice restaurants, concerts, exciting things that keep us going so we don't have to slow down and sit quietly with ourselves and with God. Life always has to be lively. That's where the joy and sustenance is found. For some of us, it's success. We worship the God of success. If we could just be a better mom, a better employee, get that promotion, get that corner office, get the raise, get the nice house, have a bigger platform, then we'd be happy. We could go on and on with things today that we chase after, but, but they all have the same root, right? We're not sure that God will satisfy us 
or that God can give us what we need. And so we go after all these other things and we give our time and our money and our effort and the devotion of our lives to pursuing those things because we think they will give us what we most truly need. And so it's not just a food problem or an overachieving problem. It's a, it's a worship problem. We're not worshiping God alone. See, sometimes it's hard for us to really uncover these idols in our lives. It's hard for us to see truly what's going on. And so there's a couple questions we can ask ourselves to help us explore this issue. Sometimes we've got to do heart surgery by asking questions to get to the root of things. And so a couple questions for us to think through. What disappoints you? What disappoints you? When we're overcome with disappointment, it might reveal that something has become more important to us than it should be. What disappoints you? Another question, where do we make financial sacrifices? Where are we willing to pay big bucks to have that experience, that item, go shopping, go on that trip? Where are we willing to give large amounts of money to have something? Where do you go when you need comfort? What makes you mad? You ever notice there are certain issues that just strike a chord in you? Get you fired up and angry? You should wonder, what is it that's causing such a strong reaction? Maybe that's an indicator that there's an idol in our life that's being threatened. Again, another question, what do you dream about? What do you dream about? What's the picture of the good life that you want to go and live? See, we all need to do some work in our own hearts to think through where are we pursuing other gods, pursuing other things that we think will satisfy us. See, the people in Hosea's day looked to Baal to provide the rain and the crops and the food and the sustenance that they needed. But they're simply thinking, God's not the one who's going to take care of me, so something else will. But you notice in verse 8 how God responds to that. She has not acknowledged, it says, that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and the gold. See, God's saying, my wife, my people, they've been blessed. They have received abundance, food and security, but they're not recognizing that the abundance of their life came from me. I'm the one who provided it for her, not some false god. Now, have you ever had someone else take credit for your work? Maybe it was a group project at school, group presentation in the office, and you put the team on your back to get the job done. Some of your partners didn't do much at all, but then you're all standing up there together and you get a good grade and the teacher praises them, but you don't really get the recognition that you deserved. God's saying, hey, don't give Baal the credit. I'm the one who did the work. I'm the one who is blessing you. The good things that you enjoy, they come from me. This reminds me of Acts chapter 17 in the New Testament. The same concept is repeated. Paul is sharing the gospel, and in verse 24, I'll just read it for us. He says this. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. 
and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Earlier in Acts chapter 14, Paul is talking and he says this, we're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things, idols, to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. So in the New Testament, Paul affirms what is being shown here in Hosea chapter 2. God is the one who made everything. The one true God is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. He is the one who gives life and breath to us and everything else that we enjoy. It all comes from God. And so that's what he wants his people to see in Hosea chapter 2, verse 8. I'm the one who's providing for you. I'm the one taking care of you. And see, the same mindset applies not just in material things, but to our own salvation. Because in the gospel, we remember what? That God provides for us what we cannot provide for ourselves. We were dead in our sins and separated from God and worthy of judgment, but God provided for us through the work of Jesus Christ, salvation and life and forgiveness and freedom and joy. And so this reality in Hosea chapter 2 really prepared the people of God to see their God as their provider, not only in temporary things, but in eternal things. And that same thing is true today, that God is the one who provides for us salvation and life with him, hope, forevermore. We could not save ourselves, but salvation came as a gift from God to us. So God wants us to see him as our provider. But you see, in order to get his people there, he's going to have to respond to their idolatry. They're chasing after other gods. They're being unfaithful to him. And so God responds in chapter 2. You see in verse 9 what he says. He says, therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I'll take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. In verse 12, I'll ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. Okay, so what's he saying? Say, no, you, you think that Baal is the one providing for you? taking care of you? You think these idols that you're running after are the ones who are really giving you what you need? Interesting. Well, I'm going to withdraw my blessings from you, and we'll see how that goes for you. So I'm going to take away the grain, the wine, the wool, the linen. I'm going to take away these vines, and wild animals are going to come in. They're going to devour your land. I'm going to withdraw my blessings from you. You even see in verse 3, a little bit back, he says, otherwise, this language of like stripping this woman and the land, it's a metaphor for what he's going to do to the land and to their crops. It says, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert 
turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. God's not advocating that this should actually be done to a woman or a wife. He's using it as a metaphor of what's going to happen to the land. All this abundance, all this produce that the people of Israel had, it's going to be taken away. The fields will be barren. Their prosperity will cease. Which sounds really harsh. Doesn't it sound harsh to our ears? The way that God will respond to his people in this punishment. But look at the hope that's involved here in verse 7. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first. For then I was better off than now. See, God's hope is always for restoration. That we would see and realize that life without God is not good. It's not better than life with Him. And so we, He wants us to realize that so we would return to Him. He wants us to go and find that there's no lasting joy, no ultimate satisfaction in things other than Him. And isn't that sometimes what it takes for us to return to the Lord? Sometimes we have to learn that kind of hard lesson of life, feeling the weight of our sin, bearing kind of the consequences for our sin and kind of the, the destruction that that brings in our life. We kind of have to hit rock bottom sometimes to, to wake up and realize that this whole life without God thing isn't going very well. I'm not faring very well on my own, and so I want to return to Him. I mean, if you remember the story of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15, many of us know it. Son says he wants nothing to do with his father, takes his share of the inheritance, runs away, spends his money on wild living, the text tells us, and eventually he returns home. But what was it that made him say, you know what, maybe I should go back? I mean, he hit rock bottom. He was eating pig food. He was homeless. He had nowhere to live. He had nothing to eat. He said, it'd be better to be a servant in the household of my father than to be out here on my own. And so he felt the, the barrenness of his decisions and it led him back to the Lord. And sometimes it's the same for us. We need to learn that lesson that way. And God withdraws his blessings, not as a punishment, but as a, a desire for us to see the emptiness of what we're pursuing and return to him. And so he says, oh, People of Israel, Hosea chapter 2, you want to pursue Baal, you think he's going to be the one that blesses you, good luck with that. I'll be here in a few years when you realize that. But notice God does more than just withdraw his blessings. We see that scattered throughout the chapter. But sometimes he doesn't just give us the hard consequences of life. He gives us these soft, gentle words, these kind and warm invitations for us to return to him. Do you notice that in verse 14? In light of all this, he says, Therefore, I am now going to allure her. Speaking of his wife, his people, I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. See, he's saying, My wife has gone astray. My people are worshiping other gods. So I'm going to allure her back. I'm going to woo her. 
I'm going to win her heart back. I'm not just going to sit back and when she comes home from her dates with all these other guys, I'm just not going to sit there and say, how was your date, honey? No, I'm going to go after her heart. I want to win her back. I want her to see how good I am. And so I'm going to speak tenderly to her. I mean, this is really intimate, warm, loving language showing the love that God has for his people. And he speaks there of leading her into the wilderness. Now, the wilderness in the Old Testament hasn't always been a great place for the people of God. Things haven't always gone well there. But here it has the idea of, let's just, can we just spend some alone time? I mean, really, can we just get away from the distractions, the things that are calling out for your attention? Can we just go into the wilderness where it's just you and me? There's a cabin up in the woods I know about. Let's just go spend some time away. Spend some time together alone. And you know the power of undivided attention, right? When someone puts the phone down, turns the TV off, and just says, hey, I'm here. Let's talk. Let's enjoy one another. Let's be present together. That's what God's saying to his people. And see, I still remember when our Zoe, our daughter, was born. Those first couple weeks. She's, like, she's almost two now, which is crazy. But those first couple weeks were terrifying, but also so special. Because we came home from the hospital, and it was just Amber, my wife, and Zoe, our daughter, and Coda, our dog, was there. Um, and we had these two weeks where it was as if the world around us just stopped. Our world stopped, and we just had this uninterrupted time together. The world went on without us. It was just us and our family. I had some time off from work. It was just some of the most special times we've ever shared. Whereas a family, it it wasn't worrying about work and a thousand other distractions. It was just our new daughter, my wife, our dog, having a great time together. And so that's kind of the picture that God is painting here. He's like, I just want some alone time with my people. There's all kinds of distractions, all kinds of things vying for your attention. Can we just get away from all of that? I want to woo you. I want to win your heart back. I want to show you how good I am. And see, for a lot of us, this language about God is foreign, right? We're used to a God that is a rule keeper who expects us to behave and is rather harsh when we step out of line. And so it maybe gets a little uncomfortable when we see this language of God's love alluring us, wooing us even, winning our hearts. It feels a little too squishy, a little too, uh, makes us uneasy. But, but really it displays the love of God for us. And so it forces us to consider, do we give that time to the Lord? Or are we just so distracted all the time that we never really stop and and give him our attention? Sometimes that's what we need to realize who he is. And so the languages and the promises and the good news of hope continues throughout the rest of the chapter. If you look in verse 16, he gives all these promises to his people. He says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. Verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. Verse 23, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called 
not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. So again, you see this continued language of, of intimacy and of love, speaking tenderly to his people, promising to bless them and looking forward to this time when they would be reunited forever. And so with this, we remember the true nature of our faith, the nature of the gospel that we celebrate, that it is God who pursues us. It's not that we clean our act up. It's not that we're chasing after God and he's really hard to find. He's the one coming after us, wooing us back to him, wanting our hearts. And we see this, of course, again, most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. He didn't just stay up in heaven where it was safe. He didn't just send a gospel blimp to, you know, put a message out in the sky for us. No, he came. He showed up. He walked among us. He died on a cross for us to pay for our sins, to bring us forgiveness and back into a relationship with God. And so I know you've heard this phrase over and over, but it's true, and we're going to continue to use it, that the gospel is good news, not good advice. The gospel that we celebrate is good news of what our God has done for us, how he has pursued us, invited us back to him. It's not good advice about what you have to go and do and clean your life up for God to welcome you. See, so often our view of religion is this ladder we have to climb to make it up to God, but the hope of the gospel is that Jesus came down the ladder to meet us here and to save us. So, while the problem of idolatry takes many forms, as we've talked about this morning, the solution to idolatry is always the same. It's return to the Lord. To turn to Jesus and to worship Him alone. And so that's what the whole book of Hosea is trying to get through us. Return to the Lord. Trust in Him and Him alone. And you've noticed it's using this whole metaphor, this whole language of husband and wife to communicate this concept to us. And so, if we think along those lines in terms of application, in marriage, in a healthy relationship, sometimes there are action steps that need to be taken in order to bring the relationship back to health and joy. Sometimes if we don't change anything about our behavior and how we respond, then nothing will necessarily change in the relationship, right? When things are going wrong, sometimes we need to pursue counseling or we need to uh, make more time to be together. We need to set up a date night. We need to find a hobby together. We need to maybe bring someone else in that we can talk to about the things that we're going through, a friend, some people that know us well, right? We want to work on our relationship, there are things that we have to do. And so the same is true with God. If we want to foster that relationship with Him, we should think about, okay, Lord, how can I take next steps to draw closer to you, to respond? So it's going to look different depending on where we are in our walk with the Lord. Some of us, the first step is just responding for the first time, saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are. And I want to trust in you. I want to follow you, and I need forgiveness for my sins that you alone can provide. Some of us, that's what becoming a Christian is all about, is putting our trust in Jesus Christ for the very first time. 
But then maybe some of us have been walking with the Lord for some time and we need to think through, okay, Lord, what are you doing in my life now? How can I more faithfully respond to you? Do I need to serve? Do I need to find some community? You know, I'm showing up on Sundays, but I don't have anyone that I really know or that really knows me. Do I need to participate in a small group and take that next step? Maybe some of us haven't, again, been baptized. We've talked about this a number of times that sometimes that's a next step of faith where Jesus says, hey, if you put your trust in me, now a way to declare that publicly in front of the church and the world is to identify with me through baptism. Some of us need to take that step. Some of us just need to have a conversation about faith. And so on that connection card you received when you came in, there's a box you can check for some of those different options. Serving, baptism, joining a small group, just talking with someone about following Jesus. What's this all about? So I encourage you not to just leave the text here and leave these concepts here this morning, but really chew on that and consider, Lord, what are you calling me to? How can I respond to you? There's one way we have of responding that we can all participate in uh, together as a church, and that's communion. And so what we're going to do right now is come to the table and celebrate communion together. This is where we remember the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on a cross for us. The cup represents his blood shed for us, and the bread represents his body given for us for the forgiveness of our sins to restore us back to a relationship with God. And so this is something that we do quite regularly as believers because he told us to, to remember him. We practice an open table here at FBC, which simply means if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we invite you to participate with us, even if you're visiting, even if this isn't your home church. Uh, But if that's not you, if you would not consider yourself a Christian, then we encourage you just to remain seated, reflect on the things we've talked about so far this morning. Uh, the, glu- or the, excuse me, the communion is all gluten-free. So if you are gluten-free, you don't have to worry. It's all gluten-free. And uh, this morning, we want to try just a nice orderly fashion because sometimes it gets kind of clogged up. So we just encourage you to make your way down the middle aisles and then go back out the sides back to your seats. Sound good? Like one of, one of these motions, all right? I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll partake, shall we? Jesus, we remember you this morning. You are our Lord and Savior. You are our King and our God. And so we come to you now, Lord, to receive these elements, and it reminds us that everything that we need, every good thing that we have, comes from you. And so we take these elements as a reminder of what you have done for us. You are our God. You are the only one that we serve. Lord, thank you for forgiving us of our sins, for pursuing us when we went astray, and for welcoming us home as your people. We love you and thank you in your name. Amen.